Today we begin our eight-week series called Unpacking the Gospel. There is no greater truth and no important message that has ever been given in the world than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I, I say that without equivocation. You probably have heard commercials talking about the most important thing you can hear. You've heard politicians telling you this is the most important election ever. I want to tell you this is the most important message in the history of the world. The gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that saves our souls. It is the gospel that is the heartbeat of our church. It is the gospel that brings us into communion with God. But oftentimes, it is the gospel that we are most quick to forget. And as we move on in our Christian lives, we dive deep into other aspects of theology, which we should. But we should never forget the message of the gospel. And over these next eight weeks, I want to unpack that. I'll be joined by other brothers who will help teach this course. And we'll go line by line to all the amazing things. I shouldn't even say all because you can never exhaust it. But many of the amazing treasures that are found within the message of the gospel. By way of introduction, I want to talk about the gospel itself so that we have an overarching Understanding of what the gospel is so that every class over the next eight weeks, your mind can be brought back to the gospel. So you look at your handout, the gospel defined, the gospel defined, the gospel, the word gospel comes from a Greek word that is pronounced euangelion. You can see the second letter. It's a U, but it's also a letter that is in English translated as a V. So that's where we get the word evangel, or evangelical, or I'm going to evangelize. What's evangelize other than telling people about the gospel? You means good. Angel is where we get angel, which is a messenger. So the gospel simply means good message or good news. So what is the gospel? How is it defined in the most succinct way? The gospel means good news. If it's good news, that implies, number one, that something happened. It's not some message about just make your life better, but it's about a story. It's about something that in real time, in real history, actually happened. When you read the newspaper or watch the news, you were reading or watching things uh, or, or comments on events that actually took place. The gospel is a story about what actually took place. It is good news... Not just news, not news, uh, tragic news or, or boring news. Sometimes news is boring, but it's good news. It's news that impacts you and me and everyone who hears it. That is the gospel. Gospel is good news. Now, what is the content of this news? What is it about? Well, secondly... 1 Corinthians 15 tells us what the content of the gospel is. Now, again, we're going to unpack that over eight weeks, so it implies a lot of things. But if I were to narrow the gospel down to just the bare basic components, what is this good news? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4. Here's what it says. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now here it comes. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You see what Paul's doing? He's writing to a church in Corinth, and he's saying, I'm going to remind you of the Gospel, verse 1, remind you of what I preached to you, remind you of that which saved you. And he says it's of first importance. There are many things to talk about in the Christian life. Prayer, worship, fasting, obedience. But none of that makes any difference if we don't have the gospel. So he says of first importance is the gospel. And then he delineates that by saying it consists of the death of Christ, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. In other words, the gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done for us. That's the gospel. You could be a Christian for many years and not know that. I think for for many years I assumed gospel was just a genre of music, right? You have rap, country, and you have gospel. Or gospel is the Bible. Well, the Bible contains the gospel, but the gospel is not equal to the Bible. Or we have the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are gospel narratives because they're talking about what Jesus did. But the gospel, as succinctly as possible, is the good news of what Jesus did for us. He died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again, according to the scriptures. A gospel that does not talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is no gospel at all. A gospel that simply says, do this and earn favor with God, is not good news. It's not good news to be told. If I just give more money, if I just try harder, it's not good news because we're going to fail. The gospel is good news because Jesus did it all for us. Number three, the gospel's power. The Bible declares in no uncertain terms what Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the gospel is good news about what Jesus did, and it is powerful. So powerful that if you truly believe the gospel... You will be saved from your sins. You'll be saved from the penalty that your sins incurred, and you'll be made right with God. There's no other message this world can offer that will ever bring you into communion with the Holy God. The gospel does that because it is God's power. Now, number four is a a mouthful. You know me. I like to give you chunks of things to think about on Wednesday nights sometimes. But... I want to read this to you just this one time so that you and I could just think about all the implications of the gospel that will be unpacked over the next eight weeks. So number four in your outline says the gospel explained. I took this right from a curriculum called the Gospel Project, which takes what we said about the gospel and sort of expands on it so that we know precisely what we're talking about. Here it is. In the beginning... The all-powerful, personal God created the universe. This God created human beings in His image to live joyfully in His presence, in humble submission to His gracious authority. But all of us have rebelled against God and, in consequence, must suffer the punishment of our rebellion, physical death, and the wrath of God. Thankfully, God initiated a rescue plan which began with his choosing the nation of Israel to display his glory in a fallen world. The Bible describes how God acted mightily on Israel's behalf, rescuing his people from slavery and then giving them his holy law, 
But God's people, like all of us, failed to rightly reflect the glory of God. Then, in the fullness of time, in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself came to renew the world and restore his people. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law given to Israel. Though innocent, he suffered the consequences of human rebellion by his death on a cross. But three days later, God raised him from the dead. Now the church of Jesus Christ has been commissioned by God to take the news of Christ's work to the world. Empowered by God's Spirit, the church calls all people everywhere to repent of sin and to trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness. Repentance and faith restores our relationship with God and results in a life of ongoing transformation. The Bible promises that Jesus Christ will return to this earth as the conquering king. Only those who live in repentant faith in Christ will escape God's judgment and live joyfully in God's presence for all eternity. God's message is the same to all of us. Repent and believe before it is too late. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. The gospel of Jesus Christ. As you can see, when we unpack the gospel, our starting point is God himself. So I want to share a little bit about just my trajectory over the years, and maybe you can relate to this. When I first got into gospel preaching, evangelism, I rushed off into the good news by telling people that they can know for sure that if they pray a sinner's prayer, they can have eternal life. I'm sure my intentions were good, as were the people who trained me in this, but we got a lot of people to make decisions, but very few disciples. Because really what you're doing is giving a formula. We went door to door, we went on mission trips, we told people, do you know that you could know 100% sure if you died today you go to heaven? You want to know? Great. Pray this prayer. And they pray the sinner's prayer, and lo and behold, they're saved. Starting with the good news. Years later, I stumbled across the ministry of Ray Comfort. I think many of us have benefited from the way of the master. Also became reformed in my thinking, so it kind of made sense that really the bad news helps the good news to make more sense. The bad news being that we're lawbreakers and we need a savior. The good news becomes more good when I understand just how bad I am and what I deserve. And so my gospel presentation was bad news, good news, rather than just good news. Well, I'm here to tell you that in the last year I've changed that too. That might be scandalous. But somebody, a missionary, recently sat down to lunch with me and convinced me that the best way to do this, the most biblical way, is not rush to the good news, or even bad news, good news, but really good news, bad news, good news. Why am I splitting hairs? Because that's the way the Bible in its whole story presents itself to us. The Bible does not start with an angry God. The Bible starts with a good God. And we live in a world that is already angry and bitter and restless and going up to everyone and just presenting to them how angry God is before understanding how good God is and why he is righteously angry is not the fullest approach. And that's why I'm starting tonight with the goodness of God. Look again at the Gospel Explained, number four, right? Notice how the first paragraph and the last paragraph 
sort of come together. The first paragraph says, In the beginning, the all-powerful personal God created the universe. This God created human beings in His image to live joyfully in His presence. Is that not how the Bible presents God to us from the very opening pages of Scripture? He's a good God. He's a powerful God. He created all things, and all things were very good. And He created man to be not only in His image, but to have fellowship with Him. So much so that the Westminster Catechism begins with, what is the chief end of man? And what is it? To glorify God. And what? Enjoy Him forever. The goodness of God. Now look at the last paragraph again, where it says, the Bible promises that Jesus Christ will return to this earth as the conquering king. Only those who live in repentant faith will escape God's judgment and live joyfully in God's presence for all of eternity. In other words, the gospel restores what was lost. God's intention as a good God to live and dwell with his people forever in perfect harmony so that they would enjoy his goodness. That has been ruptured by our sins. But the good news is God has taken initiative to bring us back to himself. The gospel is good news, then bad news, then good news. And the good news begins with God as good. God is good, brothers and sisters. He is good. And I want to make the case from Scripture that he is good. Even if you've heard that before. God is good. We say that, right? It's a phrase. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. Why are we coming to a class on that? We know that already. No, the Bible presents a good God. And in a world that is wicked, it's so refreshing to know that the God that we worship is good. What are some things that make God good? Well, let's look first at God's transcendent nature. Transcendence means to go beyond. That means God is not like us. There's a creator-creature distinction. God is God. And we are not. We are not. And that's a good thing. Because when you think about the universe, and you don't believe that the universe sort of made itself, you have to believe someone made the universe. It only makes sense, right? That there would have to be a being that is outside of time and space and matter that can speak all things into existence Thank God he's transcendent because he's above his creation, which means he's not limited by his creation. We are limited. God is transcendent. Theologians often talk about God's communicable attributes, that those are things about God that we can relate to, and his incommunicable attributes, things that we necessarily cannot relate to. For example, God is creator. We are not creators. Now, we create things on this earth, right? We've created things when we were kids with Play-Doh. We've drawn things. We've made things with our Legos, maybe as an engineer or a computer. Um, what, what is a computer person who builds the computers called? Computer builder? Programmer. Okay. Yeah, create programs, right? An architect might create things. That reflects the glory of God. When you create something, you reflect the glory of God. But who is the creator of all things? Only God. We are not creators in that sense. He's the creator. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. What does this tell us about God? As creator, God has the right to do what he pleases with his creation. As creator, we will be held accountable to him. 
The people that are in our lives who are living their lives as though there is no afterlife, there's no judgment, we ought to pity them because they were created in the image and likeness of God. And from dust they were created, from dust they will return. And as it is appointed unto man once to die, after this, the judgment, we all will return to the one who gave us life and breath. His creation will be held accountable. And as Romans tells us, who are you, O man, to answer to God? God is the creator, and he created all things with intent and design and intricacy. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. God is good. Secondly, God is eternal. This is one that we certainly can't relate to. We really can't think of things in this world that are eternal because everything has a beginning and, the, and an end. Maybe the only thing we could think of are numbers, right? What, what's in infinity? Infinity plus one, infinity plus two. It just keeps going, right? But everything around us has a beginning and an ending. <coughs> Revelation 1.8, however, says about God, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. I am who, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha and Omega. That's the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. Just another way of saying first and last. And not only does it say God was and is to come, as in past and future, it also says who is. God is. God just is. It would take me a whole course to unwrap what that means, and I don't think I can wrap my head around it. We are contingent people. We rely upon oxygen. We rely upon God's goodness to even exist. God just is. He's self-sufficient, self-sustaining. He simply exists. And he's eternal. He will never die. He never began. He will never end. God is good. God does not begin or end like us. He always was, and this is a good thing, because he is infinite. He is constant. He holds all things together. He's not going to let you down. He's not going to be flaky. He's not going to be late for an appointment. He's perfectly eternal And he just is all the time. God is good. Thirdly, God is a trinity. God is a trinity. Bible makes this clear. Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Again, we don't have time to dive into... um, Defending and, and expositing everything the Bible says about this. But in short, the Bible confesses there is one God, not three, one God. But the Bible clearly says the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. And so we call that the Trinity, one God, three distinct persons. God is, therefore, independent of himself, totally content, and totally joyful In and of himself. The reason God can relate to you and me is because God by nature is relatable. The Father relates with the Son. Matter of fact, some theologians have said that it is the love between the Father and the Son that emanates through the Holy Spirit. I just can't wrap my head around that. But the Holy Spirit being the the production of the love between the Father and the Son. Infinite production. God is incomprehensible. Can you explain the Trinity? Can I, can I take out a whiteboard with a Sharpie marker and say, okay, here's how you could fully explain everything about the Trinity. 
Absolutely not. That's why it boggles our minds. And, and of course, there are people who will say, because you can't fully explain it, therefore it's not true. That's nonsense. We can't put God in a box. The Bible says in Romans 11 how inscrutable, incomprehensible are, you, are your ways. And what does that lead us to do? To despair? No. It leads us to worship. That's why the angels are, are, are around the throne of God in Isaiah 6, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God cannot be contained, and He cannot be fully explained. His ways, the Bible says, are past finding out. That's why God must relate to us in terms we could understand. But we're never going to fully exhaust what it means to be an eternal trinity. So whom did God love before He created us? Before you came along, as lovable as you are. Whom did God love? How could God be love if there was a time where humans didn't exist? Well, the answer is found in the fact that God is a trinity. God loves himself. Now, that's scandalous, right? Wait a second. We're not supposed to love ourselves. That's pride. That's arrogance. How could God love himself? Isn't that egomaniacal? Well, it would be, unless you're perfect, Unless you are the expression of love itself. Imagine not only having a cure for cancer, but you yourself being the cure for cancer. I know that's hard to imagine, but just imagine for a moment. You, your very presence was the cure for cancer. Wouldn't you want everyone in the world to know you? Because it was for their good that they know you. Because you're the one who will cure them by your very existence. God is the perfect expression of all the things we're going to talk about. Holiness, love, justice, you name it. He is all of that wrapped up in one being. Therefore, God can purely and in a holy way love and delight in himself. And then wish for us to love him so that we would experience the benefit of his goodness. God shares his love and his goodness with his people. God then is transcendently the eternal trinitarian creator. He is good. Can you imagine if God were those things but not good? If God were the creator but not good, we'd be in a lot of trouble. If God were infinite and omnipotent and could do whatever he wants, but he wasn't good, we would be serving a tyrant. But God is all-powerful, and he is good. C.S. Lewis, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, tells of Mr. Beaver talking to Susan about Aslan the Lion. And you may know that Aslan is a type of Jesus Christ. Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He is good. God is not safe. Our God is a consuming fire. But he is good. There are some attributes of God, moving on, 
that we can relate to even though we cannot fully comprehend them. And we fall short ourselves. And in all of these things, God is perfect. First of all, holiness. Psalm 77, 13. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? Holiness simply means to be set apart. Sort of like these fine china behind me. They're set apart on a shelf. Reserved for a special occasion. I don't think we're going to serve an agape meal on one of those plates. We're not going to pour something out of one of those vases. They're not ours anyway, but I don't think they use them for that. They're set apart. Holiness means to be set apart. You and I, as Christians, ought to be growing in holiness. We ought to be set apart from sin, set apart from Satan, set apart from the world. But you know as well as I that we fail in this matter. We may look back and say, thank God I've grown in this area, but not so much in this area. Or I've grown by leaps and bounds, but then I took a fall. Our holiness will not be perfect and complete until the day that we see Christ face to face. But God's holiness is pure. God is perfectly holy. He's perfectly righteous in all that he does. God will never sin and God cannot tell a lie. He'll never cheat. He'll never take shortcuts. Because God is holy, He is just. We, as Christians, just as human beings, we cry out for justice. We see injustice in the world. We want to see justice served. God is just. There's no injustice with God. We'll never say that God messed up in one of His trials in heaven. He is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly just. Even His anger is holy. We, we know, <laughs> we've probably experienced some righteous anger and a whole lot of unrighteous anger in our hearts. Sometimes human anger can be petty, easily provoked, angry for the wrong things. We get angry for inconveniences. We get angry in traffic jams. We get angry when someone forgets the pickles in our, the order right of our sandwich. I'd be angry about that, actually. But... That's just to show that I'm petty and I'm not God. God's anger is righteous and it is directed towards sin, which is breaking his holy law, which is something we will talk about more next week. But understand that God's holiness is good. Thank God we serve a holy God. But God is not only holy, God is love. Psalm 33, 5, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. God's love is steadfast. That means immovable. And then John says it so clearly in 1 John 4, 8. He literally says, God is love. God doesn't just have love. God is love. You want to know what love is? Don't go to Hollywood for that. Don't turn on the radio for that. If you want a good definition, look at God. Worship God. Behold God. Read about God in the Bible. And you will see what perfect love is. God is love and He is good. Though God is self-sufficient and delights in Himself, think about this, the Trinitarian eternal love that has been communicated for all of eternity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is directed toward the world. For God so loved the world. 
the, the smelly, rotten, wicked world. For God took the love that he has and shed it on the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God is under no obligation to share the love that exists between the Father and the Son with anyone, let alone sinners like us. God's love is good. When you know God's love, and you know this as Christians, you know when you know God's love, it brings peace. It brings light. It brings healing. It brings wisdom. God's love is the perfect expression of 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter. God's love is not proud. It's not arrogant. It's not self-serving. And God's love is pure. We talk about God's love. We're not talking about an erotic love, a romantic love, a selfish love, a flaky love. Love you on Monday, not so much on Tuesday. It's not a fleeting love. It's a perfect love. A love that in Romans 8, Paul says, no one can separate God's people from. Not height, not depth, not any other creature. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It is eternal. It is unbreakable. It is inseparable. God is love. God is good. And of course, there are so many other attributes we could talk about. I crammed in point C, omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. But again, we can exhaust this um, for many, and we will. We will, in eternity, exhaust all of this in praise around the throne. But God is also omniscient, which means he's all-knowing. He's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere. And he's omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful. And if there's really one word that can summarize all of that, he's unlimited. You and I know what it's like to have limits. You, you want a job so bad you did everything you could to train for it and, and tailor your resume, and then you get rejected, right? Because you're limited. You're limited by the HR rep. You're limited by the CEO. You're limited by the typos that you had in your resume. I don't know. Uh, you study really, really good for a test. You study really hard for a test. And you, you paid attention. You took notes. You hired a tutor. And you take that test and you fail. Or you don't get the grade you want. Because you're not omniscient. God's all-knowing. He knows everything. We don't. And we can go on about omnipotence, right? So we know what it's like to not have the knowledge we want or be where we want or have the power that we want. God knows no limits. Look what it says in Psalm 139, 1-14. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. 
You can find glimpses of all three of those attributes in that chunk of scripture. His omniscience, all-knowing. His omnipresence, his being everywhere. And his omnipotence, his almighty power. God has all unlimited power, and yet he is good. He doesn't use it like a tyrant. He doesn't use it. Imagine if you or I, even for one day, were given the power that God has, how much we would wield it irresponsibly. God takes all of his attributes in holy perfections and executes them perfectly and responsibly. These are attributes that make God, God. God is God. We are not. He is not safe, but he is good. He knows all things, can do all things, and is everywhere all at once. Think about that. He has, I don't know, millions of believers in this world right now from different time zones praying to him. At the same time, and he hears each prayer intimately. It's hard for especially those of us who are parents to talk to one child while another child is asking you a question at the same time. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. God hears from all of his children at the same time. And because he's not limited by time, he can hear you as if you're the only one in the room. It's amazing. God does, there's no line you know, there's the throne, and there's like a really long line, like a Chick-fil-A that just opened up or something. God can deal with us because God's not limited. Thank God he's not limited. The God of this universe is a transcendent being, revealed as a trinity of persons, infinite in holiness and love, and unlimited in power and knowledge. And so I ask you, with just that brief study of the person of God... How does God's nature and being relate to the gospel? What does all that have to do with the point of this class, the gospel? So I want to take a little time to talk about God's goodness and the gospel, beginning with this point. God's goodness is the basis of all that is good in this world. Next week, we're going to focus more on the flip side of that, which is the fallenness of man and the fallenness of this world. But you know, as well as I, that the world is not all evil. We experience many good things in this world. It's corrupt, yes, but not completely evil. It's just not working as it's supposed to. It's like a great car with great features that you appreciate, but something goes wrong with the car. It's never attained to perfection. Some days more dangerous than others. For some of us, we live much more comfortably, even in a sin-cursed world, than brothers and sisters halfway around the world. But it's still the sin-cursed world where we all experience both the pleasures of living under God's goodness and the pains of living under the fall. And so the goodness, think about all the good things in the world that you and I enjoy. The kindness that is communicated between neighbors. The love that you experience and the memories you create. Or even just the physical beauty of the world and God's nature and appreciating the, the flowers and the trees or, or looking out into, the, into space or taking your microscope looking at the cells. Or the flavor of food, the euphoria of mutual love, the blessing of family, 
the thrill of adventure, the fun of sports, the excitement of victory, the usefulness of technology, the advancement of science, the intricacy of art and architecture, the pleasure of music, air conditioning, beef jerky. I could go on and on. There are many good things in this world, and they are all a reflection of the goodness of God. Secondly, God's holiness is the basis for his judgment of men. So because God is good, he's also holy, he's going to be the perfect judge at the end of the world. This is a really important point, brothers and sisters, because that means that God and God alone is the standard of righteousness. It's easy for us to compare ourselves to others. Say, oh, I'm I'm not like her. Yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not like him. How many of us think, well, I'm, I'm no Hitler. So, you know, maybe God will let me in. Maybe if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. A lot of people think that way. But God is the standard. Imagine thinking that the standard is to get to heaven, don't be an abuser or don't commit mass murder. And that's, that's it. That's the standard. How many people say that, like, well, I never killed anybody. Oh, that's, that's the standard. Okay. So as long as you never killed anybody, you get the head. Is that really? If you turn around and say, wait a second, actually the standard that God's looking for is himself. Himself. Only God. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. And so it's God's perfection that's the standard to live and dwell with God for eternity. That's why in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees a vision of God, and he sees the angels around the throne saying, Holy, 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 what is the first thing Isaiah says about himself? Woe is me! The angel didn't have to tell him, Oh, Isaiah, you see that God right there? By the way, you're a sinner. He didn't even have to be told that. Once you take a look at God, you recognize how unclean you are. So don't compare yourself to others. Compare yourself with God. God is the perfect standard of holiness and righteousness. And the question is, do we meet that standard? And the answer is, absolutely not. So that means we're in a lot of trouble, doesn't it? That's the bad news. See, good news, bad news, good news. That's bad news to think, oh my goodness. I, if one bite of one fruit was bad enough to exile Adam and Eve from God's presence, then I'm in even more trouble because I have done many more wicked things throughout my life. And that is bad news. And we should understand the weight of judgment will be according to the holiness of God. So his goodness can be taken as a good thing or a scary thing. But that leads us then to why the gospel is ultimately good news. Because point C tells us God's love is the basis for his salvation of man. What makes the gospel so glorious is that out of this eternal love of this good God, He is pleased to save sinners. God plans to redeem the world. The very world you live in, the Bible says, will be recreated as the new heavens and the new earth, and it will be better than Eden. And in the new heavens and new earth, it will be only good. Not a mix of good and bad. Not a good day on Monday and a bad day on Wednesday. Only goodness. No more sorrow. No more sin. And God wipes away 
every tear. It will be only goodness all the time. God will be the God and the only God that is worshipped. All the false gods will be out of our, probably even memory, and God himself will be our light. Is that deserved? No. It comes from God's perfect love. His eternal, unbreakable love. The Bible says God showed his love toward us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. The gospel, the good news is that our good God is reconciling us back to himself, the source of goodness, even though we wandered from his goodness. We were the ones who wandered and we could not find our way back. We were blind and dead in sin. But because he's good and loving, he brings us back out of his love. Look what it says in Hosea 11. Now, this is written to the Israelites, but this could be written about any sinner. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. Verse 4, if you don't get anything else, please get this. All the subjective pronouns, I, 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 that is God. What we need to understand about the goodness of God in the gospel is that he takes initiative. He starts. He moves toward us. Right? He says to his disciples, you did not choose me. I chose you. The Bible says we love because he first loved us. God takes the first move. We're the ones who wandered away from him. And he's the one who pulls us back with his cords of love. Because he's a good God. Uh, Keith Jones, a missionary to Italy, we support him in Wayne. He's been to, not to this building, but he's spoken um, at one of our prayer meetings in, in Kearney. I spoke with him. He's the one who talked to me about how the goodness of God is the foundation of presenting the gospel. So I want to give credit where credit is due. And I asked him to elaborate on that. And here's some things he said as we conclude our time this evening. The central essence of God is love. Right? When Jesus prays in John 17, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. So just to reiterate, God's love did not start in Genesis 1.1. God's love existed forever because God is forever and he is love. But Lamentations 3.33, I don't have it in your handout, but you might want to look at that or note it says, for it is not willingly that he humbles and afflicts the children of man. But 2 Kings talks about provoking the wrath of God. So it's not willingly that he punishes, but his wrath can be provoked. That's an interesting paradox. Here's what Keith said. He said, the Bible never says that God is provoked to goodness. The Bible never says God is provoked to love. What that means is there's nothing that you can do to result in God's love and goodness. He just always is love, and he always is good. But he can be provoked to anger and wrath. 
Goodness and love already belong to God, but he's provoked to anger. In other words, his anger is a response to man's conduct, which is based on our stubborn unbelief, our desire to be autonomous and not trust in God and have him as Lord of our lives. So he gives this illustration. And I've used it before, I think. Imagine that God is the Wi-Fi signal in your house. He emits, he sends forth waves, outpouring of love and joy and goodness, because that's what he is. He is love and joy and goodness. Everything that emanates from God is love and joy and goodness. And man, you and me, we're a device. We have, we have a capacity to receive that. But man wanders away. And you know what it's like when you take your laptop away from the Wi-Fi router and how frustrating that can be. Man distances himself from those emissions of love and goodness. And the more humans move away from the signal, what's going to happen? They'll lose their connection to goodness. The world is the way it is because people have rejected God. It's that simple. The gospel that we preach consists of the message that God's wealth is an immovable reality in the universe. He is an emanation of goodness. And that is good news for us to know that I can know this good God. But the bad news is that through our unbelief and our sins, man refuses to tap into the source of that goodness. And because we're lost and fallen and blind, we could not work our way back to the signal that we lost. So the good news is that by His love, God did not leave us in that condition, but He moves toward us, which demonstrates once again how loving and good He is. All the passages in the Bible that talk about God's glory in reality are speaking about making man in order to participate in His goodness. God created you to participate in His goodness. And if you don't participate in His goodness, it's because you don't believe that. But as man turns to God in repentance and faith, not just mental assent of facts, but actually tasting and delighting in God, God is glorified. And as Jonathan Edwards said, the happiness of the creature consists in rejoicing in God, by which also God is magnified and exalted. Joy, or the exalting of the heart in God's glory, is one thing that belongs to praise. And so, brothers and sisters, if the salvation of sinners was based upon our holiness or our love or our justice, we would all fail. Because we're limited, unlike God. But because salvation is based upon God's love and His grace and His justice, which are all part of His goodness, then all who are drawn back to Him by His cords of love will always be secure in Him. Because the love of the omniscient, eternal, trinitarian, omnipotent God can never fail. If you're connected to the router, it will never say lost signal. Because God's love never fails. And why? Because He is good. Amen.